Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of a new episode of the WorkLife Podcast. And today with me is Jennifer Moss, joining me from Canada. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. So nice to have you. Um, I'm really, really pleased that you could uh, join us on the podcast episode. Just a way of introduction. Uh, Jen is the co-founder and chief communications officer of Plasticity Labs. She is an expert on data-driven insight into happiness and emotional intelligence in the workplace. And she's also the author of a recent book called Unlocking Happiness at Work. And of course, everything that you do totally resonates with what we do at the Work Life Hub and also with the interest of our listeners. So I'm very, very excited for this conversation. And thank you again, Jen, for, for joining me. And just maybe handing over to you, may I ask you to explain to listeners, introduce yourself to listeners a bit about your career, your journey, your passion, and also what led you uh, to writing this book. And, and I know that there have been some ups and downs, and I'm looking forward for you to share the story with the listeners. I'd love to. I'm so glad to be on your podcast. I'm an admirer of your work and your content, so this is terrific for me too. I um, I say I'm an accidental entrepreneur. Uh, I wasn't intended for me to be leading a, a software company, and especially uh, having a startup after three kids. Uh, that's for some uh, the definition of insanity. But I um, but I found myself in this position after my husband and I were living in California. We had moved there because my husband played pro lacrosse. He was actually a pro lacrosse player and, and originally he had played pro hockey. So very much an athlete. We had moved to California to, to enjoy sort of that sport and weren't planning to stay. And then we ended up having our kids there and a really great career that he kicked off. And uh, obviously, Northern California is a beautiful place to live. So we were enjoying our life there when Jim became very sick. He had contracted West Nile swine flu and then a post-viral illness, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And obviously, this was very scary for us. He went from being this high-level gold medal winning athlete to acutely paralyzed and 
at the time we were very afraid that he wasn't going to make it. And the doctors quickly quashed those fears. We were okay um, in that he was going to live, but he was um, told, we were told that he wasn't going to maybe walk again, or if he was going to walk, it would be with assistance. And we didn't know how long that was going to be. So as a pro athlete and uh, the wife and family, um, I should mention that we had a two and a half year old child and a, and another baby on the way about eight weeks before delivery um, when we were going through this. And through this process, we really started to lean on our network and reach out to our network and ask them what we could do to try to build some sort of resiliency to what we were coping with and maybe just boost our moods through such a stressful time. And what we learned through all of the reading was this link and it always went back to gratitude. And as we started to practice gratitude, what we saw were these people inside of our sort of healthcare support system coming back to us and, and giving more back and supporting us more. And it was this contagion effect that had occurred inside this, this recovery room. And Jim ended up walking out of the hospital with some assistance. Uh, he had a cane and then our two and a half year old boy's little hand <laughs> to leave the hospital uh, and was walking. And so you know, flash forward from that learning, we moved back to Canada and we started to study all of this. And what we learned was that this is real science. It wasn't just intuition. And when you use these tools like hope and efficacy and resilience and optimism, the hero traits along with gratitude and empathy and, and mindfulness, these are the precursors to building your own psychological fitness and happiness. And what we did was we started to use technology and figure out how to scale that training and bring it into the workplace to, to grow people's capacity to handle trauma and stress and develop their growth mindset. And, uh, and that's sort of where plasticity, this concept of neuroplasticity and building these traits through repetitive behavioral interventions over time to actually become happier, higher performing people. Well, thank you so much for so generously sharing your your story. And of course, we're all very happy that uh, Jim is doing well. Um, and I know it must have been devastating. And But something that I, I see often actually in our, um, in our podcast guests is as a common trait um, that quite a lot of them, if not all, have had some major life event that that was almost an awakening or a turnaround and turned out to be an, an amazing opportunity in a, in a way post-exposed uh, looking back where they have really looked on the other side and, and, and were able to see what is important and I almost find that I just as a follow-up question before we go more into all the science and all the research that you have done is um, just a curiosity. Do, do you find that when you speak to people now, when you meet random people, that you can differentiate those who get it and those who not yet? Uh, absolutely. That is such a great question. I find that there is a mix 
always in my, you know, in my audience because I speak all over the world now on this topic. And what I find is that there are groups of people that are completely leaned in. And a lot of them, it is because they face some sort of trauma and rebounded and have been able to really know that we are resilient. And and, and that's a thing that we're seeing when our youth right now is this inability to teach gratitude. And a big part of that is that our kids have very protected lives. And that's a good thing. We don't necessarily want these children to go through trauma. That's not it. But it's very difficult for someone to understand what it means to have true happiness unless they've gone through something where it has been the opposite of that. And, and that sort of post-traumatic growth or grit, you know, or growth mindset, those are very important strategies for happiness. And uh, unless you've really, you know, not experienced it, it's difficult to, to wrap your mind around um, how to truly experience happiness. Absolutely. And uh, I feel that too, you know, when I interview guests and, and in particular, a couple of them, I I itch, you know, to ask them, who are your gurus? Where did you find this? Who was talking to you? Was it Tony Robbins? Was it Oprah? You know, I think that once you get on this vibe, uh, it resonates with you. You will find your your gurus. You will you will identify with the different schools, and and it's then when you start talking to people, you you resonate. You really resonate. You're on the same wavelength of of gratitude of of positivity, of optimism in a way. And, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a building community in a way that is not so much esoteric anymore. We see mindfulness, for example, really spilling over into the world of work and organizations. And this takes me a little bit to my next, next question. I mean, you had your own personal life story and milestone, but do you also feel that it, it's aligned with some greater movement around happiness, of a happiness revolution, of, of, of really understanding what this is about? I absolutely do. And, and when you talked about your communities, I mean, your tribes or the people that were aligned with, when, you, when we actually left the hospital the first uh, or, and moved back to Canada, went to, to school, and Jim started really studying it, our first real um, research came from Christakis and Fowler out of Harvard. And what they were studying was the social contagions of various um, illnesses that they found actually are catching, including depression, loneliness, divorce, and also, you know, diabetes, but then also happiness. And I think what happens is that our language starts to change, our shared language starts to change, it becomes less uh, like you said, esoteric and more common. And we're, we're really understanding the science aspect of it. And we're, you know, we listened to psychologists for a long time, but this ability now to see the inside the brain and how the brain's gray matter actually starts to change and the prefrontal lobe thickens and the, you know, the fMRIs and the EEGs show brains lighting up. That gives us this added validation around what psychologists and and brain scientists and even as far back as Socrates has been saying for, for, for many years. And so I think 
that validation has made it so that we can use this language and share it in a way that feels much more um, accepted and adopted. And then once that triggers, then the contagion effect and the movement can spread much more rapidly. Absolutely. It's no longer a kind of a taboo or or stigmatizing and then you're the hippie voodoo type of person talking about this but but much more mainstream and language is very important just as you said yes exactly now um very interested in what you have found around because your book is about unlocking happiness at work and i think that's quite unique um we see a lot of happiness in the context of um, personal happiness and, and, you know, coaching type or or personal development. We see a little bit um, country level happiness emerging, you know, as an alternative to GDP. Um, Dubai and the United Arab Emirates, they have a state secretary for happiness, but still not so much at organizational, the kind of the meso level. So I'm very Mm -hmm. interested how you took this research and and why you decided to translate it into an organizational level and then i'll ask some follow-up questions about how you situate it among the other trends but i'm quite interested in what made you focus on on this level particularly workplace is important to me in that i've had and, and i love that question because i have been asked this you know why work and there have been some articles out recently with this backlash, you know, the Economist put that article against happiness. And there's some people that feel sort of fiercely that it shouldn't be brought into the workplace. And and the thing is, is, is that I think it's because we have happiness um, identified as all wrong and I inside the workplace and that people feel like that's an intimate personal uh, decision around how they're going to feel and, and for a workplace our employer to come in and try to to own that or to um to to push it on people that you know that's the fir- employee's first reaction in a lot of cases is that it's going to be attached somehow to my productivity my engagement or performance and so there's this fear around or lack of trust around what happiness actually means and how we can coach it inside of organizations and the thing is is that happiness is not the absence of negative feelings happiness is about dealing with conflict, but trying to resolve it versus avoid it and creating, you know, an open place for people to have dissenting opinions and uh, to allow us to feel comfortable in failing and learning from those failures and for us not to feel defensive about them, building resiliency because we're going to have change and trauma inside of workplaces. So, you know, dealing with grief is a topic that I go into quite often and, and, um, and that's a kind of preparation we need to provide organizations and build the psychological fitness of organ of people inside the workplace so that they can discover their own way of becoming happy by building up those other upstream sort of traits. And so I spend a lot of time educating people around the fact that happiness inside the workplace doesn't need to be that we're all hugging it out around a spreadsheet, you know, and, and cheering and, and, you know, group hugs. It doesn't need to be like that. It's, it's really just, you know, looking at the fact that we are now whole beings that go to work and we have lives that intersect with our work and work that intersect with our lives. The stuff that happens on the way to work is going to impact 
those first few hours that we arrive and the stuff that happens at work is going to impact our home life too. So looking at the fact that we're on a 24 cycle, uh, hour cycle and that we're not bifurcating nine to five work life from our home life. So we have to be intrinsically motivated around that, that desire to be happier just in general. And then it spills into our work. And, and also, we spend 90,000 hours in our lifetime at work. Most of us will spend a lot of time at work. So we need to look at it not being a place where we can't wait to get out of at Friday at 5. We need to look at that, that fact that we spend more time often with the peers that we work with. And so how do we blend this, um, you know, this whole being, sort of whole work-life balance, or what I like to say work-life continuum, um, into more of a, you know, of a happier experience and, and not try to just make life happy and work bearable. Now, <clears throat> there's one question that I ask quite often um, to the guests, and I would like to also ask this to you because this is central to our work and creating a movement and, and creating a kind of an advocacy. You know, the par part of our work is advocacy before we can sell anything. Because yes. what, what we found is that, or what we're finding, is that you have startups and small companies, quite recent companies that have been mainly started by younger people that are already built on a lot of these um, terms and conditions of trust, of transparency, reciprocity, um, respect, uh, which create this... Um, environment you know readiness for embracing all of the other issues of mindfulness of happiness of resilience and then you have companies that are almost failing that something horrible happens um, legally or business-wise or and then they need a dramatic um, turnaround and then they get in the consultants they get in the people who will help them transform but my question to you is also how do we get to the vast number of mid-sized companies in the middle who are still chugging along okay so they don't think they need this and still employees go day in and day out thinking you know when is it five o'clock when can I finally go home and and this is a quest and I saw that your quest is something similar is, is reaching one billion people and and I think that's very much aligned. But how do we do this, Jen? This is my question to you. It is definitely not something that can be done overnight is clearly what I've recognized um, since starting out this lofty goal, however many years ago now, um, is that it really, it really has to be around advocacy, like you're saying, and uh, creating more education and awareness and teaching people really what it means to, to think about happiness and what it means for them. And we always say we're not trying to give a billion, you know, make a billion people happy, but give a billion people the tools so that they can discover what makes them happy. And, and a, a lot of it is shifting now, I think, in what you're saying is that you know, I have quite a few mid-sized companies and, and even companies and organizations I would never expect would be reaching out to, to learn more about how to build happiness inside of their organizations, like libraries, 
you know, one of our greatest customers are libraries and, and you know, schools and government uh, tend to be really slow or late adopters. And so I feel like these these organizations that typically aren't ones to, to jump in to anything new, the fact that they are reaching out is showing that something is shifting because they are looking at happiness in a way that isn't how it used to be. And they have the buy-in of their CEOs. And so workplaces, I feel like another reason why we, we went into this this mode because when you start to track it to economics and some of the research that we're doing that's supporting um, the global happiness indices and some work that we're doing with the Canadian government right now, what we're learning is as soon as we can start to track outcomes, like in schools we're tracking academic outcomes and in communities we're, we're looking at open data that tracks crime rates and you know poverty and Again, we're not looking to, to solve systemic poverty, but if we start to track outcomes and if we can use data in a way that's really meaningful, we're able to get people to be much more comfortable in adopting it in small ways that lead into big ways. And I think that is the, the, the key, is getting to where people want to, to be able to prove it or show it because you and I believe this intuitively and there's a lot of us early adopters and people that are leaned in that say, we get it, we know it. It's those folks that have to see the economic or the, the outcomes that we're, we're going to shift. And as soon as we do that, there'll be a tipping point. Mm. So speak to the hearts and the pockets. <laughs> I would say that any movement really that gained traction is a little bit of... A little bit of both and then some political will. I think uh, that adds some benefits too. Absolutely. And you just mentioned data. That's what I wanted to also ask you about. Um, how does analytics come to this? I would, I could imagine that somebody would, you know, look at us funny and think, how are you going to measure happiness or what are you going to measure? So would you mind to to just give us a little bit of a one-on-one of, of what is it that we can measure and how and over what period of time, for instance? Yeah, the, you know what? One of the things that we learned early on in our our big lofty goals, Jim and I wanted to do this nonprofit and we were going to, we called it the Smile Epidemic. It was going to be this app that we gave to the world and, you know, we're again, very uh, dream-like in our plans and we realized you know, the, when you start to build a nonprofit and you're asking people to, um, you know, to donate money and you're competing with with really important uh, efforts out there like cancer or homelessness or poverty or, you know, or starvation and really some some pretty big projects that we felt, you know, going to people with our hands out saying support our smile epidemic cause even though we believe in it strongly it just it wasn't resonating with people and so what we realized that is if we can intuitively show people through data how what we believe is real and that it does translate into these great um increases in engagement and productivity and and um and just profitability then we might be able to go um, into the social innovation space. And so that is the direction we took. And really early on, we knew that the win-win would be if there was an authentic strategy where people had a compassionate capitalism mentality that we could 
encourage employers to think about it that way. So measuring became very important right up front. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the way that we started to do that was just at, by asking people to share what they were happy for between a scale of one and 100 every day was very simple and why. And this was shared anonymously back in aggregate to the leadership team. And we started to be able to do additional research again, very anonymously. Um, we're, we're pretty protective about that. We think that if you share data back to leadership and you attach it to a person, you're really going to break trust. So, um, and then it'll never work because people will put on a persona. People will end up putting on, you know, LinkedIn persona or a, a social media persona that won't actually be authentically capturing their happiness. So the things that the, the reasons we, we kept it anonymous were for, for that reason alone. And so we built that trust with the users to say, we'll make sure you're protected, but we'll share things and trends. And mm-hmm. so we measured happiness, but then we would correlate it to things like hope and efficacy, your sense of productivity, your job satisfaction. Do you feel like, you know, you, you like what you're doing? Do you feel effective? Are you resilient? How are you coping with change? We looked at micro drivers and macro drivers of certain cultures. I mean, you look at a call center uh, employee and the collective, they're very different in their, you know, their cultural makeup as far as an organization is concerned versus say, um, you know, athletic company or a retail chain or a bank. So we started to understand how emotional intelligence and happiness create drivers for performance. And, and then once we figured out that model for each organization, and this is what we really do is figure out what that model is. Then we try to support the building and the learning of that, um, those key intrinsic motivators that are specific to each organization. And the way that, you know, data can translate all of this information into really meaningful, um, programming and meaningful communication from leadership is what is going to be transformative or other programs where they're just one size fits all doesn't really help people to feel like they're connecting in, you know, to what the, the greater goals of the organization is. And then also engagement surveys, you're looking back all the time. And by the time you take all that data and you analyze it and you give it back to a leader inside an organization, 30% of those employees who were high performing and who you were trying to model have gone. Hmm. So really it's about looking at what our capabilities are. How do we scale? Now we can scale through technology. Now we have the means to understand all of these nuances inside of the information, the small data that helps us really understand what an, an organization and what a collective and what each individual cares about in these very distinct ways. And once you can get to that, you know, once you can get to that sort of core of each group, that's when you can really see um, an authentic strategy around happiness succeed. Mm, Fantastic. I think that was such a great comprehensive explanation. And and I totally agree about, you know, the what you said about the the different ways uh, it used to be measured or the one size fits all and everybody it wants hyper customization. I mean, you know, we're no longer 
these factory workers, these 1984 faceless factory workers, you you right. want to be acknowledged because this is exactly what goes back to what you said about acknowledging your wholeness or bringing your whole selves to work. And, and I think it sounds like a really well-rounded, well-thought-through strategy that you you have built up. So congratulations. It's so it's a really interesting new world, and we you know we really want to ensure that there's um, you know there's the right motivations behind it. But we've started to see things like you know there's an election cycle, and you would have never expected for people to feel so strongly in this election as maybe others. And so we saw you know happiness really dip, um, mm. and not just because of one decision versus another, but mostly because people felt isolated in their opinions is what we saw. And inside the workplace, if you feel isolated in your opinions, that can really impact engagement. And so these are things that you can't predict really or pre necessarily prepare for in programming. And, and yet, if you have the ability to see that this one day hugely impacted the workplace across the globe, then, Every organization can do something differently based on the persona of their organization and handle it very differently, but also know that they're universal um, in in the learning. And so that is those are the key things that we're starting to understand. Even just rain for 43 days in one of our company, they had 43 days of rain and it was starting to make people feel very low. And so knowing that that piece of this, you know, this whole being um, mm -hmm. was impacted. And there were ways for you to start saying, well, let's, you know, let's embrace the rain, let's do a gratitude exercise around the rain, or let's go for a walk around the office or figure out these small interventions that's going to pull people up. If you don't recognize that or have that small data to share with you what is really going on, you don't intervene. So that's really what we're trying to help employers have better sense of those other things that they might not be able to um, to prepare for. Yeah, make the invisible visible. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. I love that. Exactly, it. it's it's so true, and it's hard to to figure that out without analyzing what's coming through and through people's words and what they're saying, where they're where they're, what they're not saying. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, now, unfortunately, the time is always way too quick um, on these podcast conversations because I could ask you a million other questions. But maybe uh, it's better if you would tell now listeners how to find you, where to find you, what's the best way to get in touch with you, and also about the book, when it's out, where is it, how they can buy it. That's great. So. Uh, we have a pretty comprehensive website, plasticitylab.com is, um, is where you can find a ton of information. And we have white papers and we always share what our research is there. We have blogs. Um, we have a, you know, we have a really, um, you know, great place to learn about what we're doing in schools. And we share a lot of content there. Uh, our Facebook page, Plasticity Labs and Plasticity and Twitter we share again, you know, um, quite a bit of content there, but you can also, uh, look to us, um, uh, or, or look for the book, sorry, to find out even more sort of details on what we're talking about at, um, at Kogan page. And it's available in stores. It's available on Amazon. You can find it in, in quite a few places in Europe. And I think it's now been translated in a few <laughs> languages. One of them is Spanish, which I just learned. 
And, um, but you can get it shipped to you pretty much anywhere from Amazon as well. But, um, and you can always reach out to me. I'm Jen Lee Moss at Twitter and I'm, I'm pretty active there. So feel free to send me a tweet and ask me any questions. I love talking about happiness and, and happy to send research or answer questions there too. Well, I mean, the one question, of course, on my mind is how did you manage to do all of this? Um, having three kids, starting a company, <laughs> writing a book, nursing back your husband to health. I mean, I don't know if you want to answer, but I just wanted to tip my hat to you, Jen, as a, as a fellow entrepreneur, female <laughs> yeah. entrepreneur and a mom of two, I think uh, marvelous. And, and I'm very happy that you found the strength, you know, to do all this and, and the world needs this. I love it. You know what? I, I call my life um, in a state of triage. So whatever is bleeding <laughs> the most <laughs> time, I, I put that up in the priority list. And I sort of joke about that, but I think it's a half truth. But, you know, there's a lot of, of questions too, especially as a woman entrepreneur. And, you know, I'm as a startup founder, I think there's only around six or 7% of us in the world that run software companies as a female. So it, it's it, advocacy there is really important. But I think a big part of it is just, you know, being okay with sometimes things taking more priority than the other. And doesn't mean that you're a, you're a terrible mother if you put your job first. And it doesn't mean you're terrible, you know, C-level executive if you put your kids first too. That a lot of it is just about trying to move in and out of that space and giving yourself way less guilt and applauding yourself when you do it without um, too much damage to the things around you. <laughs> and I, I, I really liked when you said, about work-life continuum we call it the work-life integration but it's so true this is not a binary process of one is off and then the other is on some kind of two switches that we switch it's it's both or all three or all four lives i mean we are intertwined we are carers and learners and workers at the same time for our entire lives and you know that that's just how it is and and i think the first step is acknowledging that and then being more open to to this happening so i love the story and i'm happy that you that you shared it thank you so much i had such a wonderful conversation today i like i said i love your podcast and i i really enjoy what you're trying to get across it's absolutely in alignment with what what we're trying to advocate for and and that synchronicity around people that are focusing on this kind of work is quite powerful and I see it growing and shifting and I'm so excited for the future of happiness I can see and work I can see what's going to start to be married and I, I'm thrilled thank you very much Jen I thank you again for taking the time for for sharing your your research your work your journey and I wish you the best of success with the book and also with Plasticity Labs. Thank you so much. <laughs>